This is Acid Horizon, a theory podcast which confronts global crisis and the specter of a world that could be free. This is episode 11, Understanding Foucault and the Feminist Philosophy of Disability with Shelley Tremaine. Thank you for joining us. Hey folks, this is Craig. Before we start, I want to say thank you to all the patrons who have been supporting this podcast. Your help has been instrumental in making this podcast better quality. Also, if you're a new listener, come find us on Twitter or Facebook or even on Discord on the Deleuze and Gattari Quarantine Collective. That's where we have discussions about a lot of the philosophy that we're talking about here. Okay, let's get started with today's episode. Welcome to Acid Horizon, the theory podcast. Today on our show, we have Shelley Tremaine. Shelley is an educator and theorist whose work, Foucault and Feminist Philosophy of Disability, was awarded the Tobin Siebers Prize for Disability Studies in the Humanities. Her work has appeared in Hypatia, Disability Studies Quarterly, and Foucault Studies, just to name a few. She was also the editor of Foucault and the Government of Disability. And if that wasn't enough, she also publishes Dialogues on Disability, an interview series with disabled philosophers, which everyone should read. It can be found on the blog she coordinates with Melinda Hall, biopoliticalphilosophy.com. We'll have that in the show notes at the end. Today, we are looking at her article entitled, This is What a Historicist and Relativist Feminist Philosophy of Disability Looks Like, which was published in the journal Foucault Studies. Thank you very much for taking some time to talk with us today, Shelley. Thank you for inviting me. And also, we have co-hosts Will and Adam joining us. It was Will who made the recommendation to the rest of us that we look at your work, and we will lean upon him somewhat to drive the interview. But before we begin with questions, I want to say that I really enjoyed your essay, not only for its arguments, but also because of how useful such an essay would be for professors and students alike who want to read something that both includes a very nice summary of the work of Michel Foucault, as well as something that has a strong rendering of the debate familiar to various struggles for inclusivity. In this case, folks with disabilities. I think you successfully identify the kinds of positions that are sometimes opposed in these debates, which broadly construed could be called, as you call, the post-structuralist position. And without putting too fine a point on the opposing viewpoint, I'm thinking about positions which elevate the experiences of oppression as a critical starting point. With that said, perhaps you can give us an overview of what you attempt to do in this paper. Well, it's been a few years since I wrote the paper, but as you noted before we began, the paper is, much of the paper forms the bulk of chapter two of my book. In the paper, I wanted to show that I wanted to argue for a historicist and relativist conception of disability, in particular, a historicist and relativist feminist philosophy of disability. And so I go through a number of moves. First of all, I mention uh, various criticisms that have been made of such an approach 
that it, um, you know, ignores the subject and that it can't take positions on political questions because of the instability of relativism. And so I address those concerns. I also go through, give some explanation of what a genealogical, a historicist approach to philosophy of disability and feminist philosophy would look like. So a genealogical account would be a historical approach to a subject matter or particular questions, particular problems, an account that, a historical account that does not look for a uh, continuity as many conventional historical accounts do, but rather is receptive to um, discontinuities or not even, uh, I wouldn't say discontinuity so much as contingencies and looks at um, how certain objects of discourse emerge into social discourse by accident or are the unintended consequences of other actions or other social movements. So that was the historical approach that I wanted to advance I also wanted to, I also wanted to correct in that paper, I wanted to address some absences in feminist philosophy with respect to disability and some misrepresentations of disability in non-philosophical disability studies. I think that's a a great explanation of, of both genealogy and, and how it applies to your work. The reason essentially why I was particularly struck by your work and I was introduced to it as an undergrad student when I decided I wanted to write a thesis on, on Foucault and disability. Um, I was immediately pointed in your direction. And the reason why I felt that your work was particularly fascinating was that it kind of had to lodge itself between an emerging critical disability studies and an emerging reassessment of Foucault. And what I want to first ask you is, what brought you to the intersection between disability studies and feminist philosophy? Maybe I could back up a bit and, st- and tell you a bit about why why I started doing work in on disability in philosophy, how that came about. Um, and and um, it came about because I was, you know, um, I was so dissatisfied and so alienated from the word, the way that disability is discussed, say, in bioethics. When I was doing my undergrad and, and also doing my coursework in graduate school, I felt so alienated by the way that disability was talked about in philosophy. And I sort of searched around the university, you know, taking courses in sociology of health and illness, whatever, to find some, you know, some some discourse that really sort of spoke to the way that I was thinking, beginning to think about, and the way that I wanted to think about disability. I did my MA thesis on Foucault and feminism. My search for a way to talk about Foucault and the way to learn about him, or rather disability, had continued during my coursework in my PhD program. And I went to my, but I also looking at the way analytic philosophers were were talking about disability in theories of justice. So Rawls, Dworkin, Sen, Nussbaum. And I approached the philosopher who eventually became my PhD supervisor and asked, 
about doing a project with him on disability. And he, Les Green, um, that's who it was, he helped me develop, uh, configure a, a project on a, a dissertation project on disability and social justice. By the time I was finished uh, my PhD, that project and my PhD, I felt dissatisfied and I felt very constrained by the way the analytic philosophers were talking about disability. And my papers, uh, Feminist Philosophy of Disability, a, ge a Genealogical Introduction, and some other recent papers take up some of that work in analytic philosophy, but do so critically. I found out many years ago when I finished my PhD um, that work was unsatisfactory. So I went back to Foucault and started to read more of Foucault through the lens of, you know, wanting to talk about, wanting to use his um, ideas and his way of thinking to talk about disability. After I graduated, I was becoming more familiar with feminist philosophy than I had been, even though I'd done, you know, work in feminist philosophy in my PhD program. I, of course, became more familiar with it when I, when I, you know, finished afterward, after I finished the PhD. And I became increasingly dissatisfied with what I saw as, as gaps and absences in feminist philosophy, which became more recognizably ableist. Uh, so I developed areas, one called philosophy of disability, and the other even more particular and yet more expansive feminist philosophy of disability. So my work is, my work is, I distinguish feminist philosophy of disability from disability studies, uh, feminist disability studies. Fascinating. Because, because feminist philosophy of disability takes up a number, you know, takes up some of the tools of, uh, that philosophers learn, you know, in terms of analysis and how to write and that, you know, we don't, you, you wouldn't find in disability studies necessarily or the, the discussions of disability that non-philosophers are making. And at the same time, I'm talking about disability in ways that feminist philosophers have not done. Shelley, I have a question. One of the things that really stood out to me in the paper was you casting an opposition these two camps that you, like I mentioned earlier, that we could sort of broadly categorize as post-structuralist, and then on the other side, the experiential slash phenomenological viewpoints. And I was curious, um, well, two things. Maybe you could just articulate for us, what is the difference between the historical materialist approach to disability versus this sort of phenomenological experiential critical starting point? And how pervasive is this split within the community of academic? You've mentioned post-structuralism, historical materialism, and phenomenology. Um, let me let me say that there is an ongoing criticism of Foucault, not just with respect to disability, but more generally. But with respect to disability, there's a, an ongoing debate about, you know, well, um, Foucault, you know, the claim is made by some people who, you know, take up phenomenology and, or what is now called critical phenomenology, which is mm -hmm. one strain of it, that Foucault's um, approach is limited. He can't address the bodily experiences. The quintessential criticism is that, you know, Foucault's approach doesn't allow us to talk about pain, doesn't allow us to talk about, you know, the more minute of disability. In that paper, in, in my book in particular, I 
critique the idea that Foucault can't talk about the body. I mean, much of Foucault's work is about the body and how the body is a historical production and cannot be separated from its political constitution. But that doesn't mean that we can't talk about things like pain. Phenomenologists who make these criticisms seem to keep moving the goalposts because at one time it was, well, you know, phenomenologists who were making this, the claims about that Foucault can't talk about the body pain, etc. But now it's people who say that they're critical phenomenologists and they distinguish themselves from the work of traditional phenomenologists and say right. that will but still direct this criticism at Foucault that he can't talk about his use of his work is limiting because, you know, one can't talk about pain or bodily experiences from his approach. But just this morning I was um I went on to Daily New, the blog Daily New, and I was talking about, you know, the embodiment of uh, how disabled people are uh, perceived as the embodiment of disgust. And, you know, there was nothing in my discussion that I, I was prevented from talking about because of, you know, because I use Foucault and other contexts to talk about things. If one really takes a look at how um, critical phenomenologists who make the accusation that Foucauldians, if you want to call us that, who use Foucault to talk about disability, can talk about certain things, certain certain phenomena such as pain, they don't have a very broad conception of what pain is and, and how pain is experienced. For instance, they're not talking about the pain of getting tattoos. They're not talking about the pain of getting piercings. They're not talking, they're talking about pain as always a negative thing. And so we need to ask, well, what is the investment in primarily non-disabled philosophers wanting to repeatedly reinsert disability as natural? Right. I, I think that's a that's a great point, particularly as it, it relates to uh, a, a section of of your book, Foucault and Feminist Philosophy of Disability. If I'm going to just read it, not to embarrass you, um, but it's it's stuck with me since since I read it. Too often, non-disabled philosophers situate themselves as quote experts who can determine what it gets to be said about disability and ableism, how much gets said, who gets to say it, and in what form it will be said and whether to engage with what is said. And they occupy the discursive, institutional, and professional spaces to ensure that they can make these determinations. What's great here is that it's it's a political assertion about academia, but it is one that is fundamentally, to, to take a word from you, Foucauldian. It is about the expanse and the axiomatic uh, grid of these institutions and how they determine uh, the way in which this knowledge is produced. It, what it what it reminds me of, what this section of your book reminded me of was uh, the aspects of madness chapter in Madness and Civilization, where he lays out point by point the development of the understandings of hypochondria and hysteria, but only on the very last page in the very last chapter does he bring it all together and show you the political ramifications of what other otherwise is considered sort of benign minutia of institutional power. So... My question here is that beyond just centering disabled voices, which is done just wonderfully in your series, Dialogues on Disability, what else can academia do sort of as a collective body to mitigate ableism in philosophical discourse? Um, 
if really, as you argued uh, at the end of the fourth chapter of your book, that non-disabled philosophers play an outside role in determining uh, the confines of discourses on disability, what can be done to ensure that disabled voices are, are physically present in those analyses? I mean, that's a great question. Um, I want to return to your claim that your mention of centering disabled voices, because I think that, um, you know, there are, are different ideas, very different ideas about what exactly does it mean to center disabled voices. Is centering disabled voices putting a chapter or an article on your syllabi? Is disabled centering disabled voices inviting a disabled person, a disabled academic, a disabled philosopher to come to your to zoom into your class once a semester? What exactly does centering disabled voices mean? And I'm glad that you, at the end of your question, you suggested actually hiring disabled people, actually disabled philosophers in, in this context. That's what centering disabled voices means to me. It's not like... Right. You know, right. I've had I've had disabled feminist philosophers telling me for years that they're putting, you know, my paper on the government of disability on their syllabus. Does that mean they're centering disabled voices if they repeatedly reject job applications from disabled philosophers? The question is, well, what does it mean to to center um, disabled voices? And but to get to your to to get to um, a second part of your question, you know, what can we do? I think that there are so many things that I've suggested or, you know, in various articles, I've drawn attention to different ways in which disabled philosophers are um, different means of exclusion for disabled philosophers, different ways in which um, disabled philosophers are uh, different mechanisms that effectively exclude disabled philosophers from the discipline, from the profession. So many of these mechanisms are still in place and, 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 and non-disabled philosophers and including non-disabled feminist philosophers and, and disabled philosophers who pass as non-disabled because we can't forget that there aren't, you know, many of those. Um, but so these mechanisms have not been taken up. So, so what need, one thing that needs to be done is that is that I've been studying mechanisms of exclusion in the discipline and the profession for a number of years. And I do have a certain degree of expertise on what it is that is preventing our inclusion in the profession. And so much, uh, most of that is not taken up and, and it has not been taken up, has not been taken seriously. So what we need is we need non-disabled philosophers to actually listen to what we're saying, right. you know, and we need non-disabled philosophers to actually give some consideration, appreciate what we're saying about the fact that there is an intimate connection, there is an in, in, inextricable link between how disability is discussed and how we are perceived. And it's that inextricable link that is one of the means to, to exclude us. I think that's absolutely right. And what one area where I, I thought was particularly fascinating is is when you you sort of uh, bring to the floor kind of material analysis of just the very practice of philosophy as a profession in the United States. Before the recording today, Adam and I were discussing. Uh, you gave the keynote address at um, at the WICDS uh, uh, 2019 conference 
Um, and you essentially provided in what was, you know, we both thought was just a wonderful uh, presentation. You essentially just provided a material critique of these zones that are otherwise just considered like resources for students and and resources for for professors and for for those who are trying to find their way in the job market. But you presented them as physical barriers of entry and institutions that directly contribute. And, you know, Adam is a particular is particularly interested in this. And I'm going to give this over to him because it was something that he pointed out to me today. And it was something that I don't think I had you know, adequately appreciated up until now. Yeah, I, I was I was incredibly struck by the analysis of a uh, you gave of a uh, fill papers and, and fill jobs, because I had never actually seen it in that way before. And I guess that's a, that's a point of privilege in the way. And it was also as it shows how that the relation to the concept of disability and disabled people and disabled voices is inscribed into the most benign, well, seemingly benign parts of our um, archivism and our uh, academic structures. Because you talk about you know how um. Disability is seen as a, a subfield of a subfield of a subfield. You know, it's like axiology slash value theory. Then we get to applied ethics. Then we get to bioethics. And then we get all these niches. And I think what this shows is quite troubling is that it kind of treats it less as though it's an uh, entirely necessary field for emancipatory scholarship and almost like a subgenre. Like we're, we're talking about things in, in the field of interests. And I think I'd I just like to ask a question about how you think um, we can adjust our practices of archiving and registering philosophical disciplines and fields in a way that can make this much more um, compatible with a critical theory of disability and how we can actually you know, lift voices and centre voices. Thank you for that question. I wanted to say that I have a paper coming out at the beginning of September in which I Wonderful. also talk about field papers and... Amazing. Um, and the constitutive effects of um, the constitutive and exclusionary effects that it has with respect to philosophy of disability and feminist philosophy of disability. And so Phil Papers and Phil Jobs, I, I have been talking, uh, now here, in the previous question, I was asked, what can we do to change things? And I said, well, that one of my suggestions or one of my recommendations was that non-disabled philosophers have to actually start listening to what we're saying are the problems rather than thinking they can apply, you know, what's been done with respect to gender um, to, to disability. Um, and, and Phil Papers and Phil Jobs are, are perfect examples because I've been talking about the problems with um, Phil Jobs and, and Phil Papers, the way that disabled philosophers and philosophy of disability are excluded for several years now. And um, non-disabled philosophers, including non-disabled feminist philosophers, have not taken up that criticism have not taken up the critique of Phil Papers in a way that would would potentially open many doors uh, and, and would potentially right. be, be quite beneficial. But that hasn't been done. And, you know, in terms of like with respect to your question of how should we archive, you know, what we're doing, one of the fundamental problems with Phil Papers and, it, it, you know, it bleeds into Phil Jobs because that, of course, the architecture of Phil Jobs mm. is based upon the architecture of Phil Papers. And one of the problems with Phil Papers is that uh, is its hierarchical structure. Mm. Cognitive science is ranked above something, say, um, that, you know, marginalized people. Tend, would tend to tend to work in 
fem philosophy of disability, feminist philosophy, philosophy of race. Those are seen as subordinate to, say, forms of philosophy of language, even though philosophy of language is imbued throughout philosophy of race, throughout philosophy of disability, throughout feminist right. philosophy. Exactly. You have this very um, outdated hierarchical structure of that method of archiving what we're doing. And it's not just what we are doing, it's what we will do because the structure of field papers is performative. The way that philosophy is categorized is performative. It tells us what we're going to do, not just what we're doing or what we have done. It's very important as well. That I think this illustrates one of the best parts of um, the explanation of Foucault that I got, I got from your paper, which was the idea that it was, combat or it was combating the idea that um, Foucault is, is post-structured and Foucault is all about language. You know, we're talking about the categorization, the archiving of, uh, of philosophy here, but this is not just language. This is a discourse, but as you, as you said, discourse is not language. These are material practices. The categorizing is an active material recording that has materially exclusive properties. And I think that's one of the key points that I think really clears up Foucault for a lot of people who are coming to him for the first time. Yeah, I, I think I think too, though, to, to that point, like there's not just a reticence uh, to engaging with Foucault more broad, and there always has been that reticence as it related to, to Foucault and philosophy, um, particularly phenomenology, right? There are plenty of phenomenological critiques of Butler, phenomenological critiques of Foucault. But some of the work that I found to be extraordinarily invaluable uh, in like, is primarily in response to Foucault's critics within disability studies itself. Uh, specifically, the late Tobin Siebers, I, I remember in... Uh, an essay that was later then published um, in his book Disability Theory, uh, he he attests that uh, Foucault's theorizations, particularly those of like docility and and inanimate politics, possess little value for critical disability studies. And what I'm wondering is not only on on the side of of philosophy proper, but also within these or, or philosophy generally, uh, but also in what, what we've, we've now been discussing as these sort of uh, subcategories of philosophy, particularly within disability studies. What is your response to the assessment of Foucault's work by these uh, philosophers that posits that, oh, the docile body is, is simply just the able body and therefore the rest of Foucault's uh, bibliotheque or oeuvre is not valuable to this practice? That, that because Foucault, that essentially that Foucault's understanding of power analytics is one that imbues bodies and interacts with bodies that are simply just able. I talk about this in, I guess, the third chapter of my book, mm -hmm. um, uh, but uh, not not directly in, you know, in response to the, the, the sort of question that you put, but, um, it, but close to it. Um, so um, the idea that it's ironic that, I mean, I think it's sort of ironic that my book won the Tobin Siebers Prize for Disability Studies in the Humanities since, since our views on, on disability are, are, are quite um, disparate and conflictual, if you will. So the idea is that Tobin, Tobin's claim is that, well, the docile body is really the able body. So, so what he's saying is that a body can only be made docile if it's so with if it was previously 
an able body. So beneath the, the docile body, there's an able body. There's all, there's a presumption of an able body. But I think that claim relies upon a misunderstanding of what Foucault, uh, was talking about when he, when he talks about, um, bodies being made docile. Mm-hmm. Um, and more generally, um, a misunderstanding of his, um, you know, conception of power and how it operates. Because the assumption of Sieber's sort of claim is that a body that's able is made docile through repressive forms of power, which of course Foucault didn't, Foucault didn't say that there is no repressive form of power, but he right. didn't think that was the most, um, the most salient way in which power, um, operates. Mm-hmm. So he thought power is productive right. and, um, produces bodies. So, you know, bodies are produced as docile. And what does that mean? That, you know, for a body to pr- be produced as docile does not mean that it's, does not mean that it's disempowered, just the, you know, just the opposite. What Foucault, you know, what Foucault's idea of productive power imply was that, for example, a docile body is it would be a body that can be used, he says, used, used, subjected, transformed, and improved. So, uh, you know, this idea that power is productive, power operates to produce a body that is both enabled and constrained, simultaneously Mm -hmm. enabled and constrained. That's the crux of Foucault's ideas about power and docility. I have a very charitable reading when it comes to to disability and and uh, Foucault. I, I find as like you have a disabled. To watch the way you're using that word ch- charity. <laughs> you have to watch how you're using that word charity when you talk yeah. about disability. Can you explain that? Well, I mean, traditionally and even today, charities are seen as a way for the government to. You know, it's a way for um, the government to relieve itself of any responsibility mm-hmm. towards disabled mm-hmm. citizens. It's like, have a charity raise money, you know, and of mm-hmm. course, we know that charities come and go. So there isn't the stability and, you know, the, the, um, the rightful distribution that is owed to disabled citizens from, or, or, you know, disabled people in general. I won't talk about citizens because a lot of people are, uh, who are undocumented are disabled too. So, so charities operate to relieve governments of the responsibilities to disabled people. That's all, that's all I was, I was just picking up on that. Right. Sorry. No, 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 that's fine. Um, You know, I, I tend to, cause when I initially read, uh, Sieber's work, and I, and I read that the docile body is the able body. I, I I sort of wondered because you know maybe a little bit of Acid Horizon like backstory lore of a thesis I'll never post. So um, uh, I, I was wondering what uh, what disability could mean in a genealogical context, and and I read the essay on on the new realism and social constructivism and sort of the deep frustration that Siebers presents with Foucault. And my response was largely, so what? You know, even if even if we were to accept um Siebers Siebers claim about about docility, A, I think his reading of docility was limited to a very particular utilization of it, right? He focuses on the section in the docile bodies, particularly about the the, erect, the the erecting of large militaries, which of course is a part of the production of power, right? Like the constraining of limbs as they march uh, to to 
you know, a drum into battle is some, is a very particular form of power. It's one that largely falls on the, the, the polarity on the side of the, the, the anatomo political. But I think largely what he did was, uh, to kind of, uh, disregard the, the more broader point about, as you say, so saliently productive power, rather than simply saying like, no, you can't do this. You must do this to compel subjectivities in such a way that one can become this of one's technical own fruition, right? To become an accountant to, it's not simply just folding bodies into sort of, just the military industrial complex or what have you. Um, but on top of that, like what, when I was a, an undergrad student, part of what I wanted to do was like run with this understanding of docility and maybe posit, uh, disability is a fundamental problem to philosophical constructions. And what I found and why I found your work so validating to me as a disabled person is when I presented this paper, there were a lot of, professors and students and, and other individuals who I showed it to who were very receptive to it. But they were largely the individuals who had found themselves more on sort of the political side of philosophical discourse. Others found it sort of scary, <laughs> right? Sort of fundamentally threatening to like Merleau-Ponty or to John Locke or what have you, right? Because part of what, and this is what Robert McGrewer and David Mitchell, they talk about sort of crypt readings of, of things. And part of what having a crypt reading of philosophy can sometimes do is present it as almost sort of a, an undermining threat to the very, to the very practice. But at the center of Foucault's analytic is showing those destabilizing constructions. Um, so why I think your work is, is so valuable is because I think it's directly in the in the tradition of of that critical uh, of that critical disposition, um, and maybe a, a possible follow up because this is also really at the, the center of your book, and this is much more direct than um, than at you know Tobin Siebers and those who found themselves in New Realism criticized the British social model um, is the assertion that uh, Foucault's work is androcentric, and that was something that was actually presented to me as a student during uh, my thesis presentation was a professor said, well, are, are you saying, for example, uh, you know, Foucault's an analysis is one that, well, it largely uh, disregards the female embodiment. Well, you know, I personally, having read like too much Foucault as an undergrad, I, I didn't necessarily agree, but I also wanted to see what, what your take was on the assertion that Foucault's work might be androcentric, particularly as it relates to, to some of his stuff in, in history of sexuality and really discipline and punish. This is one of the questions that I address in a fourth, the fourth chapter of the book and also in um, a paper, a paper before the book um, entitled uh, Educating Shui. Um, where I talk about uh, where I do an analysis of feminist criticisms of his treatment, Foucault's treatment of the case of uh, Charles Jouy. Is Foucault's work androcentric? This has never been uh, an issue for me. Um, I think that so much of, in, in the fourth chapter of the book, and in the Educating Jouy paper, I show that, um, you know, so much of so many of the claims that have been made to justify this assertion of his androcentrism 
simply are unsubstantiated and cannot be substantiated uh, mm -hmm. in, and justified in, in with, the, with the so-called evidence that's being presented. In the Educating Shui paper and also in the chapter, I, you know, show that, that these claims that Foucault did not appreciate the victimization of women and girls through sexual abuse and, and rape, um, that in fact Foucault was, wasn't, you know, and that he's, you know, endorsing pedophilia and in the Educating Jui paper, but even more so in the book, I show that I argue to my satisfaction that, you know, Foucault was not talking about pedophilia in the way that feminist philosophers have said that he he was doing, in fact, he was talking about, well, if you've read the book, you know, he, I claim that he was talking about what, what gets called cognitive impairment. Um, yes. And, um, so it's a misunderstanding. And, you know, as I say in the fourth, at the end of the fourth chapter, one of the reasons, um, why there's been this misunderstanding and this misrepresentation of this area of Foucault's discussion in the history of sexuality and also in the abnormal lectures um, mm -hmm. at Collège de France. One of the reasons is that feminist philosophers don't know very much about, you know, don't know very much about disability and know even less about the history of disability and the history of the construction of disability. What was fascinating too about the response was you, you kind of, what, what I, I, cause you took a really contentious element of Foucault studies, which is just that uh, extraordinarily complicated argument that he makes in the first volume of the history of sexuality. And I'm a very contentious person. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think what I, it's what I appreciated was the, the, the willingness to take this critique head on, but, but then also to lay out the biopolitics of the entire discourse surrounding it. And to then tease out the implications as it pertained to specifically disability and its relationship to power and knowledge, um, which was- And philosophy. And of course, philosophy too, which is why, you know, I, to me, it, it was, it was the responses. And what was interesting was they weren't simply just defenses. They were defenses where, and this is what I liked about the, the book specifically was these defenses also played a role in conjuring a critique. The defenses were actually a fundamental critique of the very practices that levied those attacks. Mm -hmm. Um, and, I, I think I'm going to hand it over to Craig because he does have a question um, pertaining to this. But I just wanted to to lay that out there that, that the reason why I think this book is so effective is that it, it isn't just simply uh, Foucault apologetics as it pertains to disability and to feminism. I'm glad that you picked up on that. I'm glad that you read it that way. Yeah. So Shelley, I one of the things that I really tapped into into this book. And to be honest, as a philosopher and just as a lifelong academic, I have not read a lot of work on the philosophy of disability. Uh, one of the things that I do, however, do, in fact, is uh, I work within the prison system as an educator. And in the prison, there are 
plenty of folks there who have disabilities that either go undiagnosed or maybe they are diagnosed somewhere it's on paper and maybe somewhere there's something like what we call an IEP or a 504 plan here in California mm -hmm. uh, you know that relates to their educational needs mm -hmm. the interesting connection that I made was regarding the notion of impairment that you articulate in the paper and I'm just going to read this sentence to kind of get me going on the question you say that an historicist and relativist feminist philosophy of disability that uses genealogy would, by contrast to the phenomenological or foundationalist view, investigate the epistemological and ontological status that the category of impairment has achieved. That is, would investigate how the belief has taken hold that impairment is a trans-historical and transcultural property or characteristic and so on. And so what this makes me think of uh, as an educator... And as somebody who instantiates almost all of the characteristics of dominance and privilege, right? I'm a white male in, in his middle age here in the United States, right? And I'm the kind of person who, you know, as an educator, I need to be aware of perhaps the ways that implicit bias plays a role in my interaction with these students and so on. And the idea that uh, the notion of impairment and the effects surrounding it can be naturalized, just appears to me on the face of it, lend to the possibility of those things being encoded in my implicit bias. My question is, um, let's, let's talk about it practically. What are some ways that impairment is naturalized in a way that ordinarily slips our critical examination, maybe in the educational sphere or just in the everyday sphere? And what are some ways that might be surprising to us, especially uh, for folks who aren't disabled? I think that we have um, talked about one of them, um, uh, you know, a, a very prevalent one earlier in our discussion. That is the um, what you know what many see as an in, you know an inextricable connection between pain and impairment. Um, and so there's this naturalization of part of the naturalization of impairment is uh, one of the mechanisms for the naturalization of impairment is um, its connection to, to pain. In terms of the ways that impairment is naturalized in philosophy, the discourse of bioethics naturalizes impairment and disability through uh, a number of means and, and um, you know, uh, ideas such as quality of life, what does that mean? It, it, you know, what does that mean if there isn't a point along the continuum of what counts as quality of life that, you know, at the end point, at one of the end points, you're going to find disabled people being used as examples. That's an, a, a means to naturalize. So this idea of quality of life is a means to naturalize impairment and disability. So there are quite a few um, uh, quite a few mechanisms in the discourse of bioethics, such as um, the idea that uh, you know death can be better than um, being disabled in some ways. We haven't talked much at all about accessibility. So let me let me give an example from um, from uh, discussions of accessibility. And the, so one way in which um, impairment and disability are naturalized uh, in discussions of accessibility within philosophy is through this idea that there has to be some kind of proof before there. So instead of universal design, 
where, where the, the focus is on environments and uh, contexts, social contexts that need to be made accessible. Instead, the idea which is prevalent in philosophy organizations and associations is that people need to make requests for accommodations, for so-called accommodations, okay? So th how that naturalizes disability and impairment is that it attributes the impairment and the disability to an individual who in turn must either fit into a situation or have make a special request for that situation, that social context to be reconfigured in some way. On top of that naturalization, that individualization and medicalization of impairment and disability, we often see that these requests for accommodation have to be done through medical professionals. For example, the, for example, the Pacific APA still has, you know, despite the fact that I've repeatedly criticized it for this, for doing this, it still has on its um, website, on its web pages, that accessibility will be provided if sometimes um, accessibility, and they talk about in terms of accommodations, you have to make a request. And the Pacific APA is explicit about the fact that some sometimes it may be the case that medical documentation is required. Wow. Now that is the ultimate in, you know, in naturalizing, you know, what is the social problem in accessibility? That's a, that's a, that's a, a, a deeply frustrating example, but, but specifically in academia, what's so f interesting to me is you have these institutions that tout, you know, a, a an eventual future of, of a, pedagogical orientation of universal design, but then maintain kind of the structures that are just fundamentally inaccessible. You know, this was something that I struggled with in debate for a long time, which I, I did forensic debate in, in college, which was where I was exposed to a lot of critical theory. And what I found was the line was truly drawn at disability. Critique could go and go and go and go, but the second that you cross the line of critiquing debate at the level of accessibility, there was the instability that that presented to the practice was just too much to allow. And the response that I would get from a lot of debaters in conversation with them and, and talented ones across the country was that they would say, oh, well, I, I would simply just ask, you know, is, does anyone here have an auditory processing disorder, so on and so forth? And that's simply just accepted as as sufficient. That that as long as we uh, provide at least some sort of lane to maybe one day, no no matter what the 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 various barriers that you'd have to cross in that medium be, right? Imagine someone bursting into your house and asking, "Are you disabled? Is your body sufficient? Right? Um, you know, are you complexly embodied?" There is an element to disability studies that I think can sometimes be displayed in such a way that it's seen as a destabilizing force rather than one of fundamental critique. There's a great point in the essay where you talk about the, the idea of subjectivation being subjectified, and you talk about the idea of this isn't simply a process of production, but there's also a sense in which agents 
have a sense in which they self-subjectivate. I just want to ask you about how that that functions in Foucault and whether there's any sense of emancipatory self-recreation or self-subjectification there, whether there are any sites of uh, possible resistance. Well, I would say yes, and, and I, I think you're asking me the question um, because um, so many people have said that there isn't, um, and um, uh, I, um, I disagree with such assertions, obviously. I think that um, you know the idea of gender performativity is a good example. I mean, Judith Butler developed that idea of gender performativity, something that I you know, draw upon in, in my work mm. on disability. Um, uh, Butler developed that idea of gender performativity on, you know, relying on many of Foucault's ideas and assumptions mm. about power and performativity and productivity of power. And I think that the idea of gender performativity is a good example of how, you know, the subject um, is, a, is, you know, self-creating, um, can be self-creating. You know, it's such a cliche that Foucault doesn't allow agency, you know, his approach doesn't allow for agency. He's talking about a, 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 an agency within constraints, Mm, which right. you know, um, which is is, st- is still a form of agency, but it's a, it's a form of agency that you know that assertion that one acts within constraints is a- acknowledgement of the fact that you know we are not islands unto ourselves. Even language, I mean, nothing is more more constraining than language, mm. and yet people still manage to write unique things, um, write unique uh, documents, write unique philosophy papers with, but they're operating within the constraints of language. Right. And I, I think too, though, that to the specific point about, about language, not to, to fall too heavy into, into, to be the subject of your critique of a lot of Foucaultians who, who tend to portray Foucault as, as just staying in the realm of language and literary criticism, um, you know, like I think Antonin Artaud is is a great example that Foucault pulls from in History of Madness uh, to show sort of the expanse and the limits uh, of these of these spaces. Um, but but more so, I, I'm wondering, you know, when it comes down to emancipation, because as as somebody with with cerebral palsy, when I was reading, you know, Siebers and other disability theorists who were critical of Foucault and, and feminists who are critical of Foucault, there was this attempt to try to give radical academics within that space sort of an admonition about, oh, well, Foucault is, is just simply not for you. Um, I feel like this assertion about there's there not being any, any emancipatory uh, power within the work of Foucault kind of goes against even just the most basic reading of Foucault, right? The one thing I think that Deleuze and Guattari, for example, in A Thousand Plateaus can pull from Foucault and his history of madness is that the only universal history is a history of contingencies, right? That, this very practice of doing this, this stuff is critique and is, is practical, right? But beyond that, I, I think the work that you do and the way in which you engage just with these these structures that exist at the center of academia that are sometimes otherwise just ignored and treated as 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 operational mechanisms like fill papers and so on prove that the Foucaultian disposition is one that has immense 
power for individuals within political context. So I guess, you know, what would be other can than... I, can I just say something? Can, can yeah, I yeah. just um, uh, interject and say, I'm, I'm glad that you have made that point and made it in that way because I was just thinking to myself, okay, well, the next thing I'm going to say, if they ask me about, you know, is Ken Foucault, can, can his uh, work be emancipatory or can it provide... Um, you know, any, any movement for disabled people, I was going to say, well, just look at the work that's being done with Foucault by mm. disabled philosophers and, exactly. you, know, mm. uh, you know, disabled academics in general, but disabled philosophers in particular, and tell me if it has at all moved the discourse on disability within philosophy. And I think it has in a big way. Yeah, I don't think that I'd be in, like, I don't want to get, obviously, like, I am just a talking head on this space, so I'm not going to provide too much about who Will is on this philosophy podcast. But, like, I don't think I'd be doing this work had it not been for Foucault. I, I do not think I would have seen myself as a philosopher with a disability, or a philosophy student with a disability uh, in the same way, had it not been for reading texts like Birth of the Clinic, Discipline and Punish, and even, you know, the later volumes of the history of sexuality. So at the very level of like the self and the anecdotal, but your text was one I think I fundamentally needed in that time in order to, to sort of show the ways in which th this text is one, uh, these texts are fundamentally formulated in such a way that Disability fits right in. Will, you have made my day. <laughs> I'm sorry. <Aww. laughs> that, that is, such, that, that is so, such a nice thing to hear. It, honestly, it's so very nice to hear. Thank no, you. I mean, I was I was nervous to to reach out to you, and I was like, okay, now I, I, you know, Craig has put me on this this program, so on and so forth, and he's brought all these great people on, and like, who was someone that I wished I had reached out to? And I was like, okay, I'm gonna, you know. Uh, just send an email, right? So I did that. And we have you on the podcast and it's just wonderful to have you here. But beyond that, you know, one thing you do in the second chapter of your book, and it was just a, sh a short comment in passing, which is again, like Foucault does this all the time where in Madison Civilization, he'll talk about, oh, Rene Descartes, like not necessarily mind-body dualism. That comes later in neoclassical renditions of his work. And then he just moves on. But because uh, he, he knows that that's an important concept but he wants to make a bigger point. You do something similar when you say like, oh, uh, disability isn't actually something that can, uh, or biopower isn't something that actually can, that can simply be extended analytically to disability. Actually, disability sits at the center of the biopolitical. And I was wondering, because it was such a small section of the chapter, I, I was wondering if you could just talk about some ways in which we could engage in a biopolitical analytic with disability at its core and what could be, and maybe these are, this is a hard question to answer, but what could be some of the, the things, benefits theoretically that we could yield if we look for, uh, we look for the diagnostic style of, of reasoning through the lens of the biopolitical? Um, okay. Uh, well, first of all, I, I should explain um, uh, the term diagnostic style of reasoning since of course know, that's of my your, bad <laughs> no 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 some of your listeners and hopefully readers will um be unfamiliar with the term that um the term style of reasoning um is uh when i talk about the diagnostic style of reasoning i'm drawing upon uh ian hacking's work on styles of reasoning 
um, and his work is is has been influenced by the work of a, a historian of science, um, uh, Alistair Crombie, who talked about styles of thinking. So um, Hacking talks about certain styles of reasoning. We tend philosophers have tended to think of reason as you know this one continuous thing that you know is universal and um, you know trans transhistorical, transcultural. Everybody has access to the same kind of reasoning. And Hacking's idea of styles of reasoning is that styles, different styles, different ways of, of understanding come into being because of, well, because of accidents, because of historical, uh, historical occurrences and accidents. And what they do, styles of reasoning create I mean, Foucault talk. Foucault. I actually think that Hacking's work in on styles of reasoning is also influenced by Foucault's idea of how types of subjects come into being. Um, and he talks mostly about, um, like for instance, what he talks about uh, in discipline and punish. Um, but so Hacking talks about how styles of reasoning, new ways of thinking bring into being new objects of discourse, new sentences, new candidates for true and false, okay? So I talk about the diagnostic style of reasoning and say that this is a new style of reasoning that has come into being with, bio, you know, um, and is associated with biopower. And um, the diagnostic style of reasoning I mean, some of the discursive objects that it has brought into being is, you know, um, one of the ideas that it has brought into being is the idea of impairment and the idea of um, impaired people, people with impairments. And I say that before the diagnostic style of reasoning, there were no people with impairments. You know, because hacking, hacking talks about how styles of reasoning are self-authenticating and, and, you know, in some respects circular. But the before the style of reasoning emerged, the objects that emerged with the style of reasoning did not exist. And so my claim is that before the diagnostic style of reasoning emerged, people with impairments did not exist because impairments emerged with the style of reasoning called the diagnostic style of reasoning. So I sort of got um, caught up in that explanation, and I'm not quite sure what where I was going with that, um, but that gives you an explanation of my thinking with respect to the yeah, diagnostic yeah. style of reasoning. And what oh, I think that you asked me what we can do with yeah. that. Um, well, I think that one of the things that I would like to see happening and is that, and I try to you know, influence some, some people around me in this respect is that I want people to give up the idea that they have, you know, that they um, th give up the idea of being given a diagnosis. Uh, you know, I, in the, the Dialogues on Disability series, I do um, with disabled philosophers. Disabled philosophers will sometimes contact me. A number of disabled philosophers have contacted me about an interview. They're doing self-nominations, basically. 
and have said to me, well, I don't know if you would consider me die. You know, I don't know if you would consider me disabled and I don't know. So I don't know if you would consider me an appropriate candidate for your series because I don't have a diagnosis. And so one thing that I would like to see us move away from is this idea that in order to count as disabled, in order to count as someone who has experienced inaccessibility, who has experienced ableism, you know, who has experienced um, being subordinated socially, you know, th this idea that in order to experience all those things, in order to identify with all those things, you have to have a diet, you have to be have been given a diagnosis. I want us to get beyond diagnoses. I want us to see diagnoses as an element of a style of reasoning that can disappear. Just a final question for you before we wrap up. Certainly the pandemic has put certain kinds of bodies at risk in new ways. And I would argue that the centering, or I would say the spotlight on the politics of medicine, especially the abysmal failure here in the United States of our administration to react to the crisis has exacerbated that risk. I'm wondering if you have thought about how the toolkit that Foucault offers us can avail us in analyzing the current evolution and the evolution going forward of the pandemic crisis? In some respects, that's a, a difficult question to answer because, because, the, um, because governments have responded and the pandemic has been given different meanings um, in different contexts and different governments have responded in different ways. We, we, talk, we were talking about this before we started recording, but I was saying that in Canada, the curve is on a definite downward trend and things are starting to open up, whereas in the States, it's, it's quite different. So it's difficult um, to talk about in generalities about, you know, how the, the pandemic has, um, has developed um, and, and what it means. Um, but uh, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll give you um, some observations. I, I think that um, Foucault's, Foucault's work has been could could can be useful to look at the pandemic because one of the things that the pandemic has and um, the way that the pandemic has been uh, for um, the past. A uh, few months, at, at least, has been um, simultaneous with the growth and expansion of the Black Lives Matter movement globally. Is that the um, the pandemic has shown us that um, you know it, it's that medicine and how bodies how bodies are medicalized, how bodies are pathologized, how bodies are individualized is inextricably entwined with um, social um, social forces and social influences that medicine can no longer uh, you know can no longer for anyone who wasn't reading Foucault before um, they can no longer think that medicine is some scientifically pure institution that you know can be um, cleanly separated from social forces and social influences that the, the pandemic has made it clear that that is no longer a plausible way to think about you know our bodies thank you very much Shelley for your wonderful insights today 
Here at Acid Horizon, we have more great episodes coming up to finish up the summer. So come find us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, or on Patreon, where you can support us for as little as $1. Okay, we'll see you next time. <laughs>